Well, good morning. My name is Paul Ramsey. I am a church planter here at Sojourn. Um, been at Sojourn Galleria for the past couple of years um, and was just recently, uh, at the beginning of this month, uh, ordained and commissioned to go plant Sojourn Bracewood uh, with our core team. And so, yes, that's good. Um, and uh, and uh, it's, a, it's an honor to be with you this morning, preaching God's word. Every year at Sojourn, so Sojourn is a family of churches in Houston. Um, there's five, Sojourn Bracewood is, Sojourn number six in Houston. Um, And every year, Sojourn Houston comes around to preach a series called Life Together. Um, And that's what this series is. This is the second of a three-week series called Life Together, which all the Sojourns are preaching to focus in on as as an expression of unity and also to focus in on some things that we believe are important um, for us to, to consider in our life together as a church planting family of churches seeking to bring the reconciling love of God to our city. Um, and so these three weeks we had presence was the first thing. Uh, last week, Taylor preached on John chapter one. This week is hospitality. And then next week we'll preach on multiplication. Uh, and so this is the hospitality sermon. Um, it'll be a little bit of an unusual sermon, not in any way other than to say that we won't be going through a single text. The text that Taylor just read, uh, kind of line by line, we'll be bouncing around to give a little bit of a biblical theology about the, the idea of what hospitality is in the Bible and what it is for us. Um, but if you would, could I just say a, a quick prayer as we begin, and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Um, thank you for um, bringing us to this point in our lives, each of us here. So often... I take for granted the breath in my lungs, um, the countless times uh, that I've inhaled by your grace and been sustained for another moment. Um, And so here we are, Lord, thankful for being here, thankful for being alive, thankful that you've given us this place and thankful that you have brought us together just like this in this moment for your purposes. We ask that you would leave us uh, this morning different than when we arrived. Holy Spirit, that you would cut us to the heart, that you'd reveal something to us about your heart for us and for the world around us as we consider this topic of hospitality. Uh, We want you to get the glory and for you to speak clearly to us. Um, In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, When I was a kid, uh, I grew up in a non-Christian home uh, and uh, it was through intersection with Christians that God kind of introduced himself and drew, drew me in. Uh, I went to summer camp growing up, and it was a YMCA camp in North Georgia. Grew up in Atlanta, YMCA camp. Um, and it was filled with Christians. We did devotions. We sang Christian songs, but it wasn't like a proselytizing camp, but it was a Christian camp. Um, and as I became a counselor, still not as a Christian, um, I was prepared to, to become a counselor at this camp, and I was learned how to give motivational stories and attach Bible verses, which I called devotions. Um, and, but I remember the weekend retreat that was leading up to my first year of being a counselor, being a leader at this camp. Something very, very clear stuck out to me. Actually, no, it wasn't a weekend retreat. This was the first, this was the morning that we were going to welcome kids, the first year as a counselor. Um, it was a Sunday morning. Kids were going to arrive in that afternoon in just a couple of hours. And the director of this camp told us, all of us you know, 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old kids who are about to welcome all these kids. And he said, what I want you to do this morning is when all these kids get dropped off in your cabins, um, what I want you to do is I want you to go and find the kid who's not having fun yet and make that kid your best friend for the week. 
And he said, you guys all wanna have a great time. You guys all have friends. But what I want you to do is when you see people come, there's gonna be the kids who are already having fun and those are the kids that you're gonna want to go spend time with. But he said, I want you to go find the kids that aren't having fun yet, the quiet kids, probably gonna be standing in the corner looking sad, looking frustrated, whatever it is that they're looking like and go make them your best friends for the week. And that was incredibly memorable for me because that's what I did, that's what we did. And that's, that's part of what made that camp a, a wonderful place for me because I was one of those kids my first year as a camper, standing off, not knowing what other people thought of me, not knowing what to do. Um, and what I didn't realize, what I now know kind of in hindsight is that that was, he was teaching about hospitality. Ken O'Kelly, the camp director, was my first teacher for what it meant to be biblically hospitable. And so as I spent um, time in the word earlier this week and over the past few weeks trying to think about exactly what angle to come at all of the different passages on hospitality in the Bible. Um, it was pretty difficult to put my finger on any one place that grabbed everything that the Bible says about hospitality because it is so all-consuming. There's three things that kind of stuck out to me right off the bat that I wanna say by way of introduction. Three things that stuck out to me as I read the Bible and thought about hospitality. The first thing was this, hospitality is everywhere. Hospitality is one of those uh, one of those unmistakable ingredients in just about everything that the Bible says about God's people, about God and his people, I should say. Um, in other words, hospitality has at least something to do with nearly everything that we do. What is love, the chief virtue, without hospitality? Can you be a loving person and inhospitable at the same time? No. Can you disciple someone and be inhospitable? No the first thing that became clear is that hospitality is an essential characteristic of Christianity. It's got something to do with just about everything that we do. Second thing is this, before that reason, hospitality is a call for all Christians. There are some in the church, um, the, the, the Bible talks about the Christian church as a multifaceted, diverse body given with many different types of gifts. Not everyone has the same gifts. And there are some people within the church who are uniquely gifted with hospitality. That's true. But imagine this for just a moment. Picture a couple who is gifted with hospitality, who invites you into their house to hang out with their friends. When you get there, the couple is super warm and welcoming. But when you move further into the room, you realize that their friends are cold, they're detached, they're clicky, they're inhospitable, they're removed. Is that a house that you would want to go back to? Probably not. Now picture that with the church. Is that a church that you'd want to go back to where you come and the greeters are absolutely warm and welcoming. They make you feel like a million bucks. And then you walk in and you sit down and everyone else has got friends, but, it, but they've developed into these little cliques. They look at you and then they quickly look away and you're left there feeling alone. Is that a church that you would want to be a part of? Is this the picture that we get in the Bible of the church? No. So that second thing that stuck out to me is this. There's a gift of hospitality, but there's also the command to hospitality for all. To welcome one another, to be welcoming to the sojourner, the outsider. That is a call not for some, but for the entire Christian church. And the third thing that struck me as I was meditating on what the scripture says about hospitality, and I was thinking about our current cultural moment, the third thing by way of introduction is this. Our culture needs the church to be hospitable. Our, whole, our culture is thirsty for hospitality. I was just talking with one of my neighbors this past week. We were getting lunch. He's not a believer, not a part of any church. 
Um, and we talked about the importance of relationships and the importance of home, the place of home, what it means to have a home. And he was just observing that he's moved around a bunch of times um, and that as he thinks about the kind of home he wants to be, are, he, he was kind of asking this question, he's like, am I welcoming enough to the people around me? And I was sitting there getting lunch with him, of course, this week. I'm preaching on hospitality, and I thought, okay, Lord, what a great moment. Our culture, people in our culture, it is ingrained in the human condition, in the very fabric of our beings, that we know that we should be hospitable. And we know that we need hospitality. We are thirsty to be welcomed into other people's homes and lives. But in today's increasingly disconnected society, increasingly connected by electronic devices, we've found that we have been, become increasingly disconnected from one another. And so you have um, organizations popping up all over the place that have a particular purpose, but you realize that they're really about community. Think CrossFit, for example. They're killing it with respect to hospitality. Right? We are in a cultural moment in which people are thirsty for hospitality, for hospitable people. People know that we, they should be hospitable but we keep running up against this wall. This is the kind of world into which God sent his people. Throughout the Bible, the world has been thirsty for hospitality, thirsty, thirsty in need of God's people to be the hospitable, welcoming type of community that he always intended for us to be. Um, and yet, so often today, the church is known for many things, but not hospitality. We're known for the opinions that we have we're known for being inhospitable to people who don't share those opinions. And so the question that we come to this morning when we think about hospitality is how can we become the kind of church that is marked by hospitality in accordance with the scriptures? How can we be that kind of church? Like I said, we're gonna be, a, this is a little bit of a different sermon because I'm not gonna stick to one passage, but what we'll see as we look through a couple of different passages, we'll see that God's kingdom grows as God's people open their lives to others. If you wanna know what hospitality is in a nutshell, hospitality is opening your lives and your homes to others. Perhaps a step further, going out of your way to open your lives and your homes to others. That's hospitality. And so we're gonna see at least three ingredients required for, this, for being this kind of people. One, we must see that we, will, we were created for hospitality. That will be the bulk of our time. Two, we must fight the war that hospitality brings us into. And three, we must welcome others as we've been welcomed. So point one, we must see that we are created for hospitality. Look with me at Luke chapter 14. Taylor read that. We're gonna start here. This story took place on the Sabbath. Um, so this is that one day in the week, one day in seven, when they were to do no work and just engage with one another in a relationship and worship God. And so it was on the Sabbath, Jesus is dining at the house of one of the religious leaders, uh, a leader of leaders. He was a ruler of the Pharisees. Um, and uh, Luke tells us, verse one of chapter 14, that they were watching him carefully. And so we should watch Jesus carefully and listen to what he says. So skipping down to verse 14, he tells this parable about a great banquet, essentially saying, when you throw banquets, he's speaking directly to the Pharisees. He's saying, when you throw banquets, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it for yourself. You're having people over in order to gain yourself favor with them in order that they might repay you in some form or fashion. So he tells them to do, to do the opposite. He says, invite people who would have no hope of repaying you and you will be blessed really on account of the fact that they cannot repay you. Look at verses 13 and 14. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid. 
at the resurrection of the just. Your lives are not for this moment, but for a moment that is to come. In this moment, you have a different purpose. So what's Jesus doing here and why is he doing it? What is he doing? He's correcting the Pharisees. He's looking at this group of religious leaders who are more concerned with themselves. They were concerned with their needs, their status, their comfort. They were more concerned with those things than in being uh, uh, servants to those around them. And so he tells them this parable, really this string of parables to correct them, to flip the script, to tell them, you should not be concerned with yourselves at all. In fact, go out of your way to make sure that you don't do anything that will benefit you. So Jesus is correcting the Pharisees, telling them in essence, you're doing the opposite of what you should be doing. It makes me think of, there was a moment a few weeks ago when our three-year-old Tallulah, who is uh, wonderful and uh, learning a lot about what it means to be a servant and a helper, and she loves helping us right now. And as we were waiting, I was home with her and her little sister, and we were waiting for mom to get home, and we were cleaning up, and she came into the kitchen and said, Daddy, I, I spilled on the coffee table. I need to clean up. And so I gave her a towel. She said, Daddy, I need the, the spray. So we have this little spray bottle of soap. I said, okay, here you go. So she takes it. She's done this before. She takes it over to the coffee table. Um, and then after like three or four minutes, I realize I haven't heard anything from her. And so I walk in and I look. And there she is. She had unscrewed the top of the spray bottle and was dumping it on the coffee table and spreading it around, just like looking, because she was excited because it was shiny and wet, you know. Um, And I tell that story (laughs) to do this. She wasn't just not doing what she had given her intent to do. She wasn't only not cleaning. She was moving the needle in the opposite direction, right? She was making it worse. And that's what the Pharisees were doing here. They weren't just not doing what they had said they would do. They were actively making life worse for the people around them. Right, so being in their lack of hospitality and self-service, they weren't just not helping God, they were actively working against God's purposes because they were working for their purposes. And so what's Jesus doing? He's correcting them. Why is he doing it? So not only are they making things worse on a situational level, but they were living in a way that was really antithetical to the heart of God. Right? Let me show you what I mean. Let's flip back for a moment uh, to a place right at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 18. Let me read for us. Starts in verse one. And the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. So pause there. Genesis chapter 18, verse one. Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, brings us into the story of Abraham to this moment when he's sitting at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And why is Moses telling us about Abraham? He's telling us, as I heard an ancient Near East kind of Bible scholar teach recently, he's telling us something about who we are and where we come from. Verse two, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Pause. So Moses tells us right from the beginning that this is the Lord appearing to Abraham. He says that in verse one. Uh, So in other words, this is God in human form coming with two angels to meet with Abraham. Abraham doesn't know this though. So Abraham sees, all Abraham sees on the horizon is these three men. And this scene is gonna be instructive for what kind of people God is looking for even back then in the desert. This would have showed them what hospitality looked like. And the reason this is important is because to show what hospitality looks like is to show something centrally important to what God's heart is like and fundamental to the purpose for which God created the earth in the first place. And so in fact, 
come back with me a little bit further to get a really important backdrop to see why this Abraham story is so important. Um, The creation story itself is a story about hospitality. In the beginning, we're told that God created the earth and everything in it, that he plants this beautiful garden paradise right in the middle of it. And with this garden uh, filled with all sorts of living things, what does God do? He then creates man and woman in his image, the crown of his creation, so that he could share this beautiful dwelling place, this beautiful home with his creatures. The problem is, of course, that Adam and Eve took this gift from God and instead of thanking him and celebrating a shared life with him in the world that he invited them into, they said for the first time a word that only ever belonged in the mouth of God. A word that would become the life song of humanity from that point forward, a word that you and I began saying boldly and often long before we ever started forming memories, as those with toddlers may be able to attest. A word that in the mouths of human beings brings, uh, excuse me, that in the mouths of human beings kills hospitality. What word is that? That word is mine. Adam and Eve looked at the good gifts God had given them most significantly their very lives themselves. And rather than seeing God as the one who held the title of ownership in his hand, they snatched it from him and said, mine, my life, my way, my world, my garden, my fruit, mine, mine, mine. And it goes downhill from there. Rather than being marked by generous hospitality, humanity spirals down in this repeated cycle, right, of greed, pride, violence, Eventually we come to this man named Noah. God resolves to to judge the world by sending a flood, but Noah walked with God. And so God sends the flood and then he brings Noah and his family out of the ark, having saved their lives. And there's this sense of hope. Maybe this is gonna be the time that that, that, that things turn around for humanity. But what does Noah do? The moment he gets out of that ark, he builds an altar, he thanks God, but then he looks down and looks at the world around him. And he says, mine. The very next thing he does, he plants a vineyard for himself, makes himself a bunch of wine, gets drunk. The, the, the lineage continues. Just a few generations later, we come to the story of Babel when humanity comes together. You might be familiar, they build this tower uh, to make a name for themselves. So rather than saying gods, the Tower of Babel is the epitome of the human territorial spirit with humanity saying one big collective, mine. So God scatters people across the face of the earth. They go around, they find land for themselves, one after another, and they name it after themselves. They build cities and name them after themselves. They they take over territory in conquest. They build their kingdoms. And it is out of this world, so that's, that's the backstory. It's out of this world that God calls Abraham. Back in Genesis 12, he says, go out from the land of your fathers into a new land that I will show you. And at this point in the story, the ancient reader would be thinking, oh great, another man called into a new land. I know how this is going to work. Wonder what Abraham is gonna do with this new land. They knew the pattern. He was gonna go move in, build a city, name it after himself, have a bunch of kids who build their own cities who name them after themselves. But as we read through Abraham's story, we see that something is different about Abraham. Instead of building cities in his own honor, he builds altars. Everywhere he goes, he builds altars. And he even... As he looks at the world around him, he doesn't see a bunch of land that could be mine. He says, God's. So at the heart of every place within this land, he builds an altar and worships. He builds an altar and worships. 
God was filling this new land of promise with a new growing family that wouldn't just enjoy God's creation for themselves, but who would be a blessing to the nations. Right in the midst of this kind of eyebrow raising story of Abraham that catches the ancient reader by surprise. We're brought into this scene where Abraham is sitting at the entrance of his his tent and we are being shown in the man Abraham what kind of people God is looking for by being shown what hospitality looks like. There's really one thing I wanna kind of zoom in on this story. There's a lot that could be said. But notice right at the beginning of this story, what is the first thing that Abraham does when he sees these three men? Look with me, verse two. Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, three men were were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them. When he saw them, he ran. See, in this culture, the reason I'm pausing there, you might be familiar, you might not be. The reason I'm pausing there is that that is very unusual. In this culture, old men do not run, ever, right? For an old man to run, at best, betrayed weakness or foolishness. Best case scenario, you just look weak or foolish. Worst case scenario, you bring disgrace upon yourself and your whole family. For an old man to be in a hurry, it was disgraceful. Gandalf would have fit right in in this culture. If you think about that line from the Lord of the Rings when there's the battle that looks like it's gonna be lost and then Gandalf arrives late in everyone else's perspective. But what does Gandalf say? He says, a wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to, right? Gandalf would have fit in in the ancient Near Eastern culture. But here, Abraham runs and he does it three times which highlights the point. He runs to the strangers, verse two. Down in verse six, it says, he went quickly into the tent to tell his wife to begin preparing wheat to make bread for the strangers. Verse seven, he runs out to the herd, which is a woman's job. He runs out to the herd to find a calf, this this plump, pleasing calf to come in and uh, prepare to have a meal for these strangers. And in these three things, we see some essential ingredients of hospitality, right? So, So Abraham runs to the strangers himself, He doesn't send someone else to, he runs himself. The first thing we see about hospitality there is that hospitality is extension of relationship with oneself to someone else. He also runs from there to do something. He runs second to provide food for them. Hospitality involves not just offering oneself in a relationship, but also providing materially for the person who you're being hospitable to, you're feeding them. And then the third thing is, is notice how he gets his wife involved. Hospitality doesn't just welcome you into your little world, leaving everyone else in your life behind. Hospitality is unifying. You bring strangers, not just to you, but to the people you're associated with as well. You bring them into a family. There's so much to be said about that, but for now, suffice it to say this, in this moment in Abraham's life, we see that God is raising up a new kind of family, a new kind of people, a community of people who will run for total strangers. Total strangers. Think about that. Abraham does not know that this is the Lord and his angels. They're just strange men who come walking from afar and he runs to greet them. God is raising up a community of people who will run for total strangers, who will see strangers not as threats, but as potential followers of him, who are willing to act even counterculturally, even shamefully, in a way that meets the needs of these strangers. Similarly, when we look back at Luke chapter 14, with Jesus sitting at the ruler of these Pharisees, where he's sitting at his house, 
teaching them about this different kind of banquet, that they should exercise a kind of hospitality that invites strangers into their home, sometimes filthy, unclean words that Pharisees would have said, we got to avoid them. Jesus says, no, you should invite strangers into your home, poor, crippled, lame, blind. So when he's telling them this story, he has their attention. And in the very next story, verse 21, Jesus continues with this same parable, explains that the master says to his servants, go out quickly to the streets of the lanes and bring in the poor, bring in the crippled, bring in the blind and the lame. So Jesus takes it that, that next, next step. He urges them, He's, he says, go urgently, run so that you can welcome these strangers into your house. So Jesus is saying very much the same thing that we see in the story of Abraham. God is looking for the kind of people who will run to the stranger who will give of themselves and expect nothing in return. Is the kind of family that will bless the nations without demanding payment. A blessing that looks a whole lot like inviting others to join in with the family around a banquet table. So from the very beginning, God's desire was to have a people for himself who would enjoy him and all the abundance of his creation, seeking always to generously share that with one another, made in the image of their generous God. And amazingly, in the wake of the fall of humanity and the fracture of their relationship with God, God's intent never changed. Perhaps even more amazingly, God's plan for righting what went wrong involved using humanity, fallen humanity as cooperative agents in reconciling this broken relationship and welcoming others into this relationship once again with God. So God is making for himself a people who would enjoy relationship with him and blessings from him and who would invite others into that kind of life. We see in Abraham what we see throughout the Bible, God's kingdom grows as God's people open their lives to others. That's the first thing. First thing that we must do in order to be this kind of hospitable community is to see that we were created for hospitality. It's written into the very fabric of our being and it is continually God's intent for how his kingdom grows. We were created for hospitality. Point two, we must fight the war that hospitality brings us into. We must fight the war that hospitality brings us into. You must know that given our fallen world, the fact that the world is fallen, the world is broken, marred by sin, that since uh, being hospitable is a purpose for which we were created, that the world is going to be actively opposing this created order, All right? Our sin, our idolatry, the enemy who is prowling like a lion seeking to devour, seeking to keep us ineffective and out of line with the created order. There's several things warring against us becoming this kind of people. Just like was the case in Abraham's day and in Jesus's day and in every day uh, since the fall, this kind of hospitality cuts against the grain of our culture and it cuts against the grain of our very hearts. You see, we are hardwired with the same problem that caused Adam and Eve to fall in the garden, are we not? In our very heart of hearts, right? while we know that we ought to be people who share, who are generous, the cry of our hearts is mine. The first thing that comes to mind in this regard is the idol of comfort. Of course, in our flesh, uh, and certainly within our affluent, entertainment, consumption-rich culture, we love comfort. We worship comfort. You've got this idol in your heart. I've got this idol in mine. We like to think our lives are about us and about 
in particular, us doing well. Here's something that I've noticed. Uh, comfort for us has become in many ways tantamount to survival. Have you noticed this in the language that we use today? Think about it. If something makes us uncomfortable, what do we say? We say, I just can't. I'm dying right now. This is killing me. I feel like I'm about to die. We could be talking about our last trip to the gym. We could be talking about that earth-shatteringly boring 3 p.m. hour at work. We could be talking about how tired we are after staying up to watch the Astros beat the Nationals uh, and tie up the World Series. It's killing me. We could be talking about the politician who said something we disagree with. We use very strong language to talk about our discomfort, which means that it means something to us. Discomfort is a real thing. Don't hear me say that it's not. Uh, But a hard day at work, does a hard day at work really mean that you're about to die? Has your sleepless or disobedient child really brought you to the brink of death? You might say, of course, we know that we're not gonna die. I know I'm not gonna die. I'm just saying that. It's just a figure of speech. But here's the thing, words matter. Before long, we really actually start to believe this stuff. We were made in God's image and the first thing that God told us to do is name things. And so when we give things names, we give them power. And so our words create meaning for us. We really start to believe that we can't do things that are hard that if they're hard or uncomfortable, that we shouldn't do them. That if something makes you feel uncomfortable, then that is a risk that you should not take, that you should avoid. And if that's your mindset, then the kind of hospitality that the Bible talks about will be a risk that you should not take, an uncomfortable thing that you will not do, an inconvenience that you would be wise in the eyes of the culture to avoid. Because hospitality is dangerous. Right? You might... You know, caring for strangers, caring for people who you, don't, who you don't know much about, people who are unlike you, right, people who are other, can be dangerous. You could get taken advantage of. There's a story you guys might have seen uh, uh, or read the book, Les, Mis, Les Miserables. I have not read the book, but you might have seen the musical or heard the musical. There's a story right at the beginning where Jean Valjean, the main character, gets out of jail. Um, he was put in jail for theft, and he gets out of jail, and he goes, and he stays overnight, at this priest who puts him in a church because he can't stay anywhere else. And he steals the, the precious silver from this poor uh, parish, that's what it's called. Um, he steals the, the, the silver, these silver candlesticks, and he runs off in the middle of the night. Um, the most precious things, undoubtedly, that this priest had in his church. And then the, the, he's get, he gets caught by the authorities. He gets brought before um, the, the judge, and the priest is brought there, and the judge says, hey, you got to you got to tell us, you got to accuse him. He, we found him, we, here's your candlesticks, you can have them back. And the priest says, they were a gift. Come back, you forgot the rest of them. And it's this incredible scene, right? This priest was hospitable. He opened this church, he opened this property to this strange man who he knew was a convict. And he was taken advantage of. And when he came back, when he, when he had a chance to say yes, you took advantage of me, you stole from me. What did he do? He said, come back, you forgot the rest of it. This kind of hospitality, the culture would look at that and say, no, 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 no way. Your flesh says, 
No way, you can't do that. It might be, they might steal stuff, they might harm somebody. Hospitality is dangerous, can be. In caring for the poor and marginalized, they might spurn your efforts. They might make it very clear that they don't want you in, your, in their life. And yet, we're called to love and seek and pursue and invite in the stranger, the other. And of course, our culture, like I just said, our culture is super on board with our flesh, right? My, my, my deepest desire is to keep my space, to build up that fence um, and keep people who make me uncomfortable out and let people who don't make me feel uncomfortable in. Now, our culture is super on board with this. You need time for yourself, right? How many blog posts have you read recently that talk about self-care and taking time for yourself? You need boundaries around you and your family, right? You need to keep yourself safe. Yeah, you gotta love others, but you gotta stay safe. But hospitality, the kind of hospitality that we're called to in the Bible could put you in danger. Could mean that you have a whole lot of time that you don't have any me time. Could mean that your bank account is a little bit more empty than it was before. Could mean that people in your family get hurt. Could mean that you get hurt. It's not saying be unwise. I'll talk about that in a few minutes. But this kind of hospitality is dangerous. And we have a culture telling us you're right. You should not do that. You might think, no, we have a welcoming neighborly culture though. But you, might, you might say, we, we have, like, my neighbors are nice. Everyone wants um, each other in each other's houses. That's true, but um, there's a difference between hospitality and entertaining. Right? And it's hard to describe this. I'll, try, I'll do my best. It's hard to describe the difference between hospitality and entertaining because the outward actions can look very similar. But here's what I'm talking about. Are you having people into your house having people into your life so that they can see you at your best? Are you having people into your life so that you can entertain them? So that they can come away thinking, wow, that person is awesome. Wow, they really know how to decorate their house. Now, if your approach to hospitality is to make yourself look good, that's one thing, but you can do the very same things and at the same time enter into it and make, go in with the mindset so that's, that's entertainment, but hospitality is opening your life so that you can have them come in and feel like a million dollars. Come away thinking, man, that person loved me. Rather than saying, wow, that, how awesome is that person? How nice was that house? How, how, how amazing was that I was invited into this house? How amazing was it that that person sat and talked to me for hours and hours, week after week for two years? Hospitality and entertainment, those are a, there, there is a fine line. We're called to hospitality. Even when your flesh is screaming, no, you can't have them in your house. It's not clean yet. No, I can't have them in my life. I can't possibly talk about that. I don't have the answers to their questions. No, I just had a really hard week. I need to get myself together before opening my life to this person. No, the invitation is come into my life so that you can see all of me just as I am. And I want you to know that I love you. So what will get in the way of our hospitality, our idol of comfort, which is very tied to our idol of self-preservation. Another thing that I should mention that's a bit harder to put our finger on is busyness. In the parable of the great banquet, 
I like that Jesus tells about uh, 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 someone who plans a banquet, someone who sets, a tie, sets aside time and resources in order to exercise hospitality. But back in the story of Abraham, if you think about it, um, that wasn't the case with Abraham. He hadn't set aside this time. He wasn't planning on having these three strangers come to visit him. But he was prepared. There was flour in the house. Right? There was livestock prepared, ready to be prepared. It makes me think about Jesus traveling through in his ministry, another familiar story for for many of you in the Bible where he goes, John chapter four, uh, and he's he's traveling through Samaria and he sits down at this well and he sees this woman. He's, He's sitting at the well, he's tired on a journey. He's done a bunch of ministry in Judea. He's baptized a ton of people. He's headed through Samaria to get to do a bunch more ministry in Galilee. And he's there on this road. He stops at a well. It's noon. He's tired. It says that Jesus is exhausted from the journey. And here comes this woman. If there was ever an excuse for Jesus to make saying, man, I just need some me time right now. That would have been it. He was in the, middle, he was in, the in between, on the journey, exhausted. And yet this woman came up and he engaged with her with godly intentionality and said, I'm here not for me, but for you. Busyness will get in the way of our hospitality. Um, I think about, um, uh, there's a story uh, of, a, I heard a minister tell recently, he was on his way, he was running late for a flight. He got to the airport running late for a flight. Um, and he, uh, he told this, he, he was telling this story and he, as he was carrying his guitar through the security line, the TSA agent stopped him and said, if you're gonna bring your guitar through, we have a policy here that if you wanna bring a musical instrument, you have to play us a song. Uh, and so this, this traveling minister who was very evangelist, uh, evangelistically gifted said, are you serious? And the TSA agent said, yes, you gotta play a song. He said, well, if, you, if, if I start, will you let me finish? And the TSA agent said, of course. So, all right, here we go. Running late for his flight, he's not even thinking about it. He stands up and he leads, he sings this glorious song of worship in the middle of this, this airport security terminal. And then he paused, he was telling this story. I watched this video, he was speaking it to a room group of, a group of people and, he, and, and, uh, and it was just kind of, I, was, I, was, I was sitting there thinking, man, like, like what kind of mindset with respect to the world around you does that require you to have, right? If other people are an inconvenience to you, then you're not gonna stop. You'll probably argue. And the TSA agent, if he had said, no, man, I'm running late for that, my flight, the TSA agent probably would have said, okay, I'm just kidding, come on through. But he took that moment. I don't remember if he told whether he made the flight or not. He was running late for his flight, but he knew he was there for a greater purpose than making his flight. Are we interruptible? Are we interruptible by people that God might bring into our lives, by three strangers that might come towards us on the horizon? And another... Another detail about the Abraham story, it says he's sitting at the entrance to his tent. Do you know why he's sitting at the entrance to his tent? Genesis 18, what happened right before then, the end of Genesis 17, Abraham had just been circumcised. Why is he sitting and not working? He had just been circumcised. So here is a sick man, the first portrayed sick man in the Bible who is in pain and here comes three strangers and what does that sick man do? He gets up and he runs. God knows I need my me time. We must acknowledge and kill our busyness. We must acknowledge and kill our idol of comfort. It means we need to cut some stuff out in our heart. We also need to cut some stuff out in our life to make room. One of the hardest, hardest things in life is to learn how to say no. 
The godly no that makes room for the godly yes when God brings opportunities like this into our lives. It's totally against the grain of our lives, totally against the grain of the culture. And so how do we do it? How do we do it? We've looked at how despite our being created for hospitality, the cry of our lives is mine. We've looked at Abraham, how God is taking this and he's starting to write a new story. But then we look time and again after Abraham, humanity continues to fail and to fail and to show promise and then to revert and fail. And so what is God going to do in order to make his people a hospitable people um, that he intended for us to be? He eventually, of course, sent in the greatest extension of hospitality in human history. He sent his own son to extend a welcome to us. He has sent, he came himself. He didn't send his emissaries. He didn't send someone else to announce. He did that for sure. But then eventually when, when, when the invitation was rebuffed, he came himself and said, won't you come to me? You remember that passage? What was Jesus, the, 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 really the, the, the kind of theme of Jesus's ministry was not, I'm here, you better fix yourselves up. It was not, I'm here to find all the people who are already like me said, come to me. That was his invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. Jesus came himself to welcome us into his family, to beckon us in, and he came and he faced every risk that he could possibly have faced. He ministered at great expense to himself. His life was repeatedly put in danger. He was absolutely taken advantage of. And eventually he was killed, shamefully killed in a way that made the world look and said, what a shame. But then three days later, he rose again to proclaim victory over his enemies, to proclaim victory over death itself, to say the family is open. And if you remember, what is the eternal symbol of hospitality is Christ on the cross with his arms not closed, but open saying, come to me, come to me. If Jesus laid his life down for you and for me to show you and me how much you meant to him, if he laid his life down for you, then how could we not take him up on it and say that is how life ought to be lived? Jesus did not keep his life to himself, he gave it away. He didn't give part of himself. He gave all of himself to his disciples, to you and to me. And so how do we become this kind of hospitable people? We must know that we have first been welcomed by God and we must receive this welcome and it is only then that we are able to extend this welcome to others. This will mean when we receive this welcome from Jesus and see our lives as extending the welcome to others, that is the purpose for which we are here. This will mean that the war that we're doing, we're fighting makes sense. The war against the flesh, the war against the world, the war against the enemy, the war against ourselves, our temptations to keep ourselves in safety will make sense because even if we were to die tomorrow, our hope is not in this life. As Jesus made it clear in Luke 14, our hope is in the day that is to come. Our hope is not in this life, in this house, in this group of friends, in this job. It is in eternity with Christ, living with my real family. This will mean that spending time with people who have no business being with us makes sense. Because you and I have no business being in God's presence, and yet he came and invited us in just the same. The good shepherd came down to you, his sheep, and invited you into his pasture to be in his presence forever.
this will mean that as we read the scriptures, as we read the Bible, we will start to see not what do I do with me and my stuff, but how do I welcome more people into my life and into my family? The whole Bible is essentially a book about hospitality. It's a hospitality primer. In it, the God of the universe extends his welcome to you and to me so that we can extend his welcome to others. Let me make three important clarifications before I close. One, this requires that we know exactly what it is that we're doing. As Paul, the apostle Paul wrote, he said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Brothers and sisters, when we talk about laying down our lives and welcoming people in, ultimately, it would be absolutely impossible and exhausting to see it as us laying our lives down for others. As us opening our personal lives that belong to us because we don't have the resources within us. But if we see the life that we now live is not ours, but Christ's life within us, that is the life that we are laying before others, that we are opening others into Christ at work in you and in me. That's the first thing. We must know what it is that we're doing. We're not doing this in our own strength. We are extending the welcome of Christ. Second thing is we must know that it requires wisdom. Hospitality does not mean run yourself ragged pointlessly. That would be a perversion of biblical hospitality. Biblical hospitality doesn't mean running yourself ragged. It requires wisdom. But the question is, how do you get this kind of wisdom? Do you look to the world? No. You look to the scriptures and in prayerful dependence on the scriptures, in community with those he's placed around us, we pursue wisdom and see, is there something in my life that I'm holding on to as mine that I need to lay down for the sake of the kingdom? We must give each other permission in community to press on in this. Here's a suggestion, a question that you could ask someone you trust this week. Where do I need to grow in the area of hospitality? Ask someone you trust and keep asking until you get a real answer. Where do I need to grow in the area of hospitality? It's a scary question to ask because you might get an honest answer. You might be told of a blind spot, which we all have and are blind to by definition. But here's the thing, we need wisdom and we need each other in the community of faith to pursue this wisdom. And then the third clarification is this. This requires, of course, the Holy Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Makes me think of the calling of the first deacons. These first leaders, servants in the church. What did, they, what did it say in Acts chapter six that these deacons must be? They must be good men above, uh, uh, sorry, men of good repute. And then it said there were two more things. Men full of the Spirit and of wisdom. How do we get wisdom? We ask God who is pleased to give it to us by the Spirit. And repeatedly we read in uh, the letters of Paul, especially to walk in the spirit. Walk in the spirit. The world is full of people who are ruled by the spirit of the world. The world will think that you're illogical, careless, perhaps even stupid. But as the apostle Paul wrote, God shows what is foolish in the world to, to, to confound the wise so that his love might be displayed in us and through us. And listen, it's hard, but it's worth it. It's been said that the best things in life are hard and that's why they're worth it. Um, I'll close uh, with the story, um, kind of circling back to, to my experience at camp. Um, when I learned to look for the first time at the outcast in the room, when I, when I first learned to look for the outcast in the room, um, it was really resonant for me because I was that kid. Right, while I was trying to pick myself up, 
right? I was a loser at that time. I didn't have any friends at school when I went to camp for the first time. I knew that I wasn't liked. And so while I was trying to pick myself up out of being this loser, fixing myself up in order to be liked, God brought me to this group of Christians who knew God's love and who loved me before I did anything. And that's how God introduced himself to me. He said, you are loved. I want you to know that. I want to be around you. I want to spend time with you. I want you to know that I want you to have a good time at camp this week. That was what it was, that specific instance. I want you to know that I love you before you've done anything. And just a few, few years later, through continued relationships with God, sharing that message with me through his people, he grabbed me and he saved me. That's just my story. Brothers and sisters, through our often ordinary and sometimes menial tasks, whether it be washing someone's clothes, changing your baby's diaper, holding your tantruming three-year-old, looking at them and saying, you know, I love you even when you're at your worst. Spending time, time and time again over a period of years with someone who disagrees with everything to do with Christianity just to show you that you love them. Even these ordinary everyday tasks of opening your life and your home to others can change the world for one person, two people, three people. Through these, asp- through these acts of loving, sacrificial obedience, God is growing his kingdom. God will build his kingdom. He has built it and he will continue to build his kingdom as his people lay down their lives to go out of their way to welcome in others unlike them so that they might come to know the love of God. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this morning and for each other, for your word. Thank you for the profound simplicity that we find in how you talk about hospitality in your scriptures. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your help when even in its simplicity, we realize very quickly that we are utterly unable to be the hospitable people that you've called us to be. Thank you that in our weakness, your strength is made perfect. Lord, your invitation to us this morning is not to figure out hospitality in order to please you. Your invitation for us is to come to you with our burdens, come to you with our weakness, come to you with our need, come to you with the lies that we're believing about ourselves and about others and ask you to speak truth. Lord, help us to feel and to know your love for us. Help us to hear your call of welcome to us and to then by the power of the spirit extend that welcome to others so that they might know your love and come to see you for who you really are. Not a God of judgment, not a God of detachment, not a God of clicks, not a God that waits until we have our lives picked up, not a God who reserves relationship only for people who are like you, which would be none of us, but that you are a God of abundant generosity with your time, with your resources, with your very person. And so help us, Lord, likewise, to contemplate um, our inability to lay down our lives, our talent, our time, our resources, to bring that to you and ask you to work in us to change us that we might truly live in line with the purpose for which you created us, to be a hospitable people. You have welcomed us. Help us, likewise, to welcome others. In Christ's name we pray, amen.